Hello everyone, this is Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing, and it is a snowy, snowy day, high above the bleak streets of Chicago, really called Chiberia today. <laughs> so cold. Uh, and we are at ALA Midwinter. We cannot see Lake Michigan, or really anything farther than a block away, but it's warm in my heart because I am sitting at a table with one of my favorite people, Paolo Bacigalupi. Hey, Victoria. Welcome, Paolo, to the Little Brown School podcast. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. How long have we known each other? Uh, maybe like, wow, like five years now, six yeah, years, something six, like that. Yeah. 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 And like, I will tell you, listeners, we still like each other. Which is weird, actually. Like, yeah, normally the more people get to know me, the less they like me. I don't same know if that's, with, same if, with if, me. That's a problem, yeah. Yes. We are two uh, non-smooth personalities that, that get along well together. It's like chunky peanut butter and dark chocolate. Perfect. Yes, or good scotch. Um, so, Paolo... Oh, wait, sorry. We're not talking about liquor right now. No, we're not. Right. I know. Okay. No children will be harmed in the, in the right. making of this podcast, right. but, you know, we are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Paolo... You have written a number of highly acclaimed books, beginning with Pump Six and The Wind-Up Girl, uh, and I love your work. Most recently, your book uh, with Little Brown Books for Young Readers is The Doubt Factory, and we'll mention the other book coming up shortly, but can you give us two or three sentences about The Doubt Factory? Yeah, uh, The Doubt Factory is uh, a contemporary thriller um, uh, that I wrote uh, because I was interested in public relations, uh, which is you know not what you normally think of when you say I'm going to do a thriller about PR. Um, but that was uh, that was literally what I wanted to do. I wanted to make public relations really interesting and really exciting because there's interesting stuff going on in the public relations industry and there's interesting stuff going on in product defense. And that was, that was the seed for the book sort of was to, to write an interesting thriller caper con sort of novel with a lot, a lot of my sort of favorite, I don't know, aspects of storytelling. I really wanted to have a romance. I really wanted to have a lot of other things in this story. And then, but also I wanted it to be about how does public relations work and how do you manipulate public understanding of the world? So you wanted to write a book about my job? Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, I, no, no, I, no it's really funny. Like, it's the way you just talk about, like, yeah, now I'm going to promote my book, and I'm going to use public relations techniques to promote my book, which is weirdly meta. Um. It is weirdly meta. <laughs> Uh, Paolo, I, I found this book to be, even though I have a, I have a difficult relationship to The Doubt Factory, because of course I, gentle reader, am in public relations in a certain sense. You can't trust these people, none of them. <laughs> I have an eminently trustable voice and face, I've been told, even, even by the FBI when they came to talk to me. <laughs> You seem very trustworthy. I seem very Here, trustworthy. Spend some time in this dark room. <laughs> uh, but what I love about your work generally is you're unafraid to tackle very difficult um, topics uh, in terms of po- sociopolitical, mm-hmm. particularly. We've seen a lot of books that deal with aspects of gender or family um, in the YA world, uh, particular social issues related to that. But I don't think that we see a lot of books that deal explicitly with the social political the socioeconomic aspect uh of of what goes on in teen lives 
not a lot of discussion about class, even though um, the so-called dystopian or so-called post-apocalyptic genres mm. have been with us for a while in YA. I don't think there's been really a treatment in those in those books um, about how we got here yeah. and what are the implications. And you're unafraid to talk about those elements. Can you tell us a little bit about how what your focus is in having that point and how you balance it with the narrative. Um, okay. Well, I mean, there's a bunch of different things to unpack. I think, so one of them is, is sort of like when we talk about, when we write stories that involve things like class issues or when we write things that are, involve political viewpoints, um, you, uh, I, I, wow, there's, there's a lot here actually. So one thing is I think that Americans generally, we have a very troubled sort of relationship with the idea of class. Mm -hmm. And so when you engage with the idea of poor versus rich, what those things signify to us, typically we look at rich as being a signifier of work. We look at it as a signifier of skill. We look at, uh, as a signifier of excellence. We look at poverty as a signifier of failure, as a signifier of, um, of, of, uh, laziness uh, as a signal, you know, there's a bunch of different things. And so we, uh, we have some baggage when we look at class, which is really, really interesting baggage. And it's not necessarily uh, the same baggage that you, you see about wealth and poverty in other countries. Um, and, and so one of the things that's sort of strange to me in writing, especially writing something like The Doubt Factory, um, was that like wealth is this weird sort of synergistic thing where once you have it, it tends to sort of reinforce itself and help itself. And and where wealth comes from is actually really interesting. Where, where are the ethical implications of wealth, how you gather it, how you, um, how you can be successful, and whether or not those things are uh, ethical methods or not um, mm -hmm. is really interesting to me. Um, and so uh, one of the things that I very much wanted to have in the Doubt Factory was I wanted to have wealthy people, um, but I wanted to look at where that wealth comes from because there are many things that our marketplace will reward us for doing. You know, we'll get the little sugar pill, like the good rat. Um, but, uh, but, but the sugar pill that we're giving isn't necessarily one that creates a sustainable world or an honest world or a better world. Um, but it is a wealthy one, you know, mm -hmm. oh, here's another cat here. You know, here's another cash infusion. You, um, uh, and, and so I was sort of, that was one thing that was kind of there for me as I was, as I was working was I wanted to look at wealth and, and, and sort of what, where does, where does prosperity come from? And I think this is generally just sort of an interesting question about America overall is where do we generate our prosperity and what is it built upon? Whose labor is it built upon? Whose suffering does it build upon? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you enjoy your iPod or your, uh, MacBook pro or whatever the toy is of the day, your iPhone, um, you know, somebody built that somewhere and it actually got built in China because it's cheap to build in China because they have a different set of labor practices. They have different standards for what we call it a uh, living wage. They have all sorts of things that make it cheap and worthwhile to work in China. Um, and so our pleasure and our, and, and who built it and where the resources came from to build something like an iPhone or whatever, they're all interconnected sort of ethical questions. That's a really great example. There's a Saturday Night Live sketch. Uh, I think from about a year or so ago, where actually that's addressed because it's a talk show skit. Mm. On one side are uh, American hipsters complaining about the processing speed of their iPhones. On the other side are three workers in the factories right, right, right. talking about their difficulties. So that that's a really interesting example because, you know, similarly to your other work, uh, for example, in Shipbreaker and the mm -hmm. Drowned Cities, not thinking about what is 
the ecology of what we eat and what we drink, how mm -hmm. that's connected, how mm -hmm. we how we see that manifest in our lives. Also, zombie baseball beatdown. Right. Yeah. Which, yes, reader, I had a problem with cheeseburgers for a little while after that one. <laughs> Uh, but there is that disconnect between the product that we purchase and what is the origin of that product that right. you really portray. But again, this is a novel, mm -hmm. so you do have that larger exploration and the ideas you want to, to explore, but you have the plot, and how do you balance that? Right. Well, and yeah, and it's interesting because I, well, so, so this is, you know, The Doubt Factory is a book about um, public relations and especially about one particular aspect of public relations, which is the product defense industry. Um, and this is essentially the specialists who help big corporations defend their products when the public starts to think that they're dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, the product defense industry really got its start with Hill and Knowlton in the um, 1960s with cigarettes, um, defending cigarettes. And then that playbook sort of got... Uh, uh, promulgated to a bunch of other specialty firms and they all do this kind of work where they say, hey, your product kills people. Don't worry, we will help you through your difficulty anyway. And uh, it's a fascinating, you know, sort of the, the, the industry is a fascinating thing, but as an intellectual, it's, 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 a, it's an abstract intellectual object. How do you talk about public relations and product defense um, in a way that's actually story driven or engagement or entertainment driven in some way because you know a bored reader will never care whether or not you have anything to say about product defense industry um you need to have an engaged reader mm -hmm. and uh and i i want to be an engaged reader i don't want to i don't want to read a book that's boring um so uh one of the things actually one of the very early things that happened for me was with that particular book was that i realized um, that there were certain, I wanted to talk about the product defense industry specifically in relation to global warming, um, because, uh, a bunch of big oil firms like ExxonMobil used to fund, uh, think tanks and researchers mm -hmm. and science sort of, and sort of bogus science organizations to sort of cast doubt on global warming, to make people think that global mm -hmm. warming doesn't exist. And, uh, which is, uh, it's fascinating and very dark and very, very depressing that there were so many people so actively involved in trying to make us think global warming doesn't exist, um, and that human driven global warming isn't a problem. And, uh, and that was, that was these product relate, uh, these public relations professionals doing a lot of that work and thinking through those playbooks. Um, and, and yet what I found was that like, if you want to talk about something like global warming, that's another abstraction on top of an abstraction, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like, his public relations is already fairly abstract, and then global warming is another big abstraction where we haven't, you were barely starting to get some physical understanding of what it means to have uh, global warming. And so, uh, so I had to shift the entire book and actually I ended up talking about the pharmaceutical industry instead, because pharmaceuticals are much more personal. People can understand what happens when a company keeps a dangerous drug on the market for another year. Mm -hmm. They understand that people die of heart attacks. They understand that that um, when a, when a company manages to fool the FDA, that there are real human consequences that are pretty immediate. And so the first thing that I actually had to do was shift my entire focus. It's still the product defense industry, but I was like the product defense industry related to pharmaceuticals um, just to make it more personal and more, mm -hmm. more real. Um, uh, then, you know, and then the other thing, you know, you're really looking to do is, is you, you're looking to generate genuine conflict still about something that's fairly abstract. Okay. If the drug kills, you know, one out of a thousand people, that's a statistic. How do you make that real? And, and that was where I started bringing characters like, um, Moses and Tank and everybody into the, into the story was that, oh, here are people who've actually lost their, their family, their siblings, others, 
around them who cared about them or cared for mm-hmm. them because of dangerous drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and so then you have an opportunity to humanize those experiences and make them seem more um, visceral and real to the reader. Um, and that's the starting point for, for, for me. And then, you know, in, in this case, Alex is somebody who's living the good life because her father helps defend pharmaceutical companies while pharmaceutical companies are killing mm-hmm. another one out of a thousand people. And so it's, the story is rooted in the, the lives of those characters and the reality right. of those characters. They interact with the larger point that right. you want to make. Right. And it and is it hard to maintain that balance? I mean, uh, <laughs> how often did you have to check, you know, reading the story and what you were working on to see if you you don't want the larger political point to overwhelm the story because then you lose the readers of the book, but right. you don't want the the your the exploration of the implica- the ethical issues, the political issues right. of the product defense industry to be lost. You don't want to weaken that, right. the pungency of that critique in the narrative. And this is actually, I, I think that there's, it's, it's very difficult actually to find the perfect line. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I've noticed, particularly with the Doubt Factory, is how different people react to it. And, you know, my, my teen readers tend to actually inhale the book. Um, I've seen some readers who are adults who say, oh, he's a little too on the nose there. He's saying a little too much about what, you know, what he mm-hmm. thinks. Um, when in reality, all I'm doing is literally reporting facts about the product defense industry. Um, and yet facts in some cases feel a little too in someone's face. And that's, that's what, that's really fascinating to me. <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have physically restrained myself from interjecting so we can keep the audio clean. I think it's fascinating that somebody says you're presenting too much of what you think. It's your novel, yes, your particular right. point yeah, of view. Yeah, yeah. So I'm fascinated by mm-hmm. a reader who says it's too didactic right. or your viewpoint is too present. Right. I mean, uh, did they think Sarah Dessen wrote this novel? Did they think Tobin Anderson wrote this novel? Did they <laughs> it's think certainly this not was... any of their viewpoints. It's my yeah, well, viewpoint, absolutely. Yes, right. I mean, I have no idea if, the, you know, well, I think... But I we, think we can guess on Tobin. <laughs> right. But we but we do see that. I mean, occasionally you do run into a novel where you're like, uh-huh, I get it. I see your politics. I'm bored. Where's the story? In fact, not only do I know your politics, I hate your politics. And, you know, and then you run into, you will turn, saying there are certain things that I think, especially in American life, people don't want us talking about. I think it's it's uncomfortable to sort of say, oh, here's, here's a painful fact. There really are these companies that that spend their time and money, you know, you know, actively working to keep dangerous things on the market. There really were real human beings who sat down one day and said, you know what, let's just protect cigarettes a little bit longer. And they spent decades doing it. And nobody ever said, you know what we need is a murder trial right now. That's what we need, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's a point of view. I have a point of view about that. These people engage themselves in a, in a, in a systematic process of murdering a statistical number of people. And they were very comfortable with it. And it was very profitable. And you see that and you say, okay, is that me being political? Or is that me just simply saying, there was someone who sat down and said, we know cigarettes are killing people. Let's keep them out there. Yeah. And where do you, you know, the the story for me is that sounds like murder. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's, you know, there. You, <laughs> And this is the moment, though, where somebody else will say, oh, that's, you're too on the nose. You're too, you're too political. Um, And I think um, when you're looking for a balance, for me, 
um, I try to keep the balance on the side of uh, facts. Um, if I see this fact, I can connect it to that fact, and then I can may conclude something from it. But those two facts are true. Um, the fact that there was some that fact, fact that cigarettes are dangerous is true. The fact that you know people sat down and made a lot of money making sure the cigarettes stayed out there also true. You know you can make your own ethical conclusions. I actually am going to go ahead and lean into that a little bit and have some ethical conclusions. And you know in every single industry where you see this occur, whether it's uh, whether it's something like cigarettes or whether it's something like uh, there are a number of pharmaceuticals that have been found to be dangerous that pharmaceutical companies were keeping on the market. Um, whether you're talking about something like benzene uh, and benzene production, where a company didn't want to deal with the fact that it was it was dangerous for its workers to be working with, or the uh, the chemical diacetyl, which was the um, which is the buttery uh, chemical that they used for uh, microwave popcorn and turns out to have terrible, terrible uh, effects on the lungs. Also, um, it tastes disgusting. <laughs> I mean, come on. But, but you know, you see these things and, you, and then you see the industry saying, oh, well, you know what? It, we just don't want to talk about how dangerous diacetyl is. We're going to keep going with it a little bit longer. And, you know, again and again and again and again, you see decisions being made and those are pretty cynical decisions. Mm -hmm. um, the balance point is the, and this is interesting is that like I feel like and this is where I wanted to go back to is like what I'm noticing is that when kids read the book they say wow that's dark that's wrong I don't like this um when adults read it they say you're preaching at me and and those adults my suspicion is is that they're actually being confronted with realities that they don't like um, and they're very angry about that. And, and that's not something I'm actually too worried about. Um, I want someone to feel com uncomfortable with this. This is the world that we as adults have built. We have built a world where certain people will make their money helping other people die. <laughs> well, oops. Oopsie. But this leads me to the next question. And, and, and you've hit on something here, the reader response, the teen reader versus the adult reader mm. and the sort of construction of what why lit is right. so in my mind um and i've said this before to certain people i think about middle grade books the classic middle grade book to me is a book where the characters realize and come to understand the world around them is not the way it is just because the world is the world because adults made decisions ah, okay and in a ya novel those characters go further in that they are deciding to take power for themselves mm. and express a, an agency about now I will make decisions okay. about how the world is. And I don't think this is hard and fast for everything right. and there's a certain amount of leakage. But to me, a classic YA novel is where those characters are like, no, it's my turn. Mm -hmm. And they, mm -hmm. sometimes they can decide they're, they're to assimilate. Being... Sometimes they can decide to amplify those adult right. decisions. Sometimes they can decide to integrate into that world. And then sometimes it is, no, I reject. Mm -hmm. Or I adapt, or I modify. But sometimes it is reject. Right. Sort it's of gaining agency, regardless yes, within that world. It's sort of you know family of origin versus family of choice, uh, faith of my parents versus what I truly believe. Uh, you know what, how I will vote versus how my parents have told me to vote. Right. That sort of thing. That's to me is a classic YA novel. But there is a lot of discussion about well. Maybe what makes a YA novel is simply the age of the reader. Is a YA novel a YA novel because of how we treat the subject matter? Do we pull our punches in a YA novel that we would not pull in an adult novel? So I'm wondering, I see the big grin on your face. So some authors like uh, Matthew Quick is like, I don't do anything different in a YA novel 
versus an adult novel. And some authors, um, I can't think of any off the top of my head because I'm here with you and you're stunning me, uh, <laughs> think I actually do, is whether it's language choices or whether it's uh, the full range of consequences choices, right. not depicting all the consequences, they pull their punches a little bit mm-hmm. uh, for YA readers that they would not necessarily do for adult readers. There's mm-hmm. a lot of, there's a range of responses about this. How mm-hmm. do you think about it? Um, I, I think there are differences. Um, interestingly, those aren't, I typically they are not differences in tone. Um, you know, so for example, uh, when I wrote The Drowned Cities, which is a YA book, I actually think it's probably my darkest and most intense book, um, even though it's for teen readers. I think it's far more dark and far more intense than The Wind-Up Girl was. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yet, you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, the teen books, those are the, you know, that's lighter, that's, you know, backed off somehow. And I'm like, God, no, that book, I wish I could have backed that off because it was um, probably, yeah, it was just, it was brutally intense. And I think about something like M.T. Anderson's um, you know, feed or uh, traitor to the nation, one mm-hmm. of those, and uh, and and there is there is nothing in there that is not, you know, I would say far more intense and far more brutally truthful than anything that I've read typically in in adult. Um, and actually, it's interesting is that I feel like there's we create this mythology that we're protecting our teens, but I feel like a lot of YA is actually being far more definite and far more direct and honest about. Um, its perceptions and its evaluations of 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 the world and and its presentation of the characters and what they have to go through is is typically actually far more devastating <laughs> um, than um, you know particularly I, I just I just finished um, reading uh, the first uh, in the in the Trade of the Nation series with mm-hmm. the, of M T Andersons and and there was a point that they, there where I just I was, I was unable to go on it was so intense and um, and that's never happened for me in adult reading. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's ever happened to me in adult reading. And and there has never been as deep a shock and as deep a sense of pain as I felt when I was reading that book. Um, and and so what I actually sort of think is that the adult novels are the ones where the adults demand solace. The adults demand to be told that they're, they're good people, that they're decent, um, that the world that they've created is one of some that makes some sort of logic or sense. Um, and I think that they are the ones who actually live in fantasy, um, and and that adult novels tend to be ones of solace in many ways. And and that and it's odd to sort of think about that, but but it really I do I do have this feeling, and I particularly have this feeling when I see an adult sort of, um, you know, raging, you know, about like, oh, how could, you know, you be so on the nose in the doubt factory? Ah, that's terrible that you're, you know, I see your politics there. And, and, you know, my answer is, A, I actually didn't write it for you. Um, I do keep my reader in mind. And, and when I wanted to write this book for teenagers, I wanted to write it for teenagers because I wanted to say, look, guys, this is what we as adults are giving you. This is the world we give you. Um, now when an adult comes in and says, I don't like your politics, or I don't like how on the nose that is, he's like, what, you don't like it when I tell teens the truth? Is that, you have a problem with this? Okay, that's fine. I don't care. Um, uh, I want, I want teens to believe it's genuine. That's important to me. Um, I want them to feel like I played straight with them. Um, and that's something that's incredibly valuable to me. Um, whether an adult thinks my politics are too on the nose or not. (laughs) 
that's, that's irrelevant. Not, and, and, and so in that, in that sense of like, what are you writing for? You know, who do you write for? How do you change what you write? Um, whether I'm writing for middle grade or whether I'm writing for YA or whether I'm writing adults, I'm thinking about like, what is the story that this person needs to hear? Or what is the story I feel like I should be delivering to them that's straight and honest with them? Um, and that's that, and it does change. When I'm thinking about adults, there's a reason why the wind up girl is written, written a certain way, or the way, reason why the water knife is written a certain way. Um, when I'm thinking about teens, there's that teen reader. I'm thinking, what is it that I can deliver to this person that I think is important and relevant to them? Um, and the same way when I'm writing middle grade, if I'm writing zombie baseball beatdown, what is it that I'm supposed to be giving to this kid that's important and relevant to them? Um, mm-hmm. And that changes absolutely between those different, you know, age ranges, um, because those are very different. I have a different conversation with my son than I have with an adult. I tell truth in both cases, but I'm going to have different conversations based on who they are and what I think is relevant or important. So, yeah. So it's a matter more of psychology. Of oh. the, of the, well, no, <laughs> no, by that, I mean, you know, you're talking to that specific person. It's not a matter right. of, you know, counting how many F words there are. No. I think we all know what that word is. It's feminism. A continuing As joke King writes it. Yes. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, you know, you're speaking to your son. Your son doesn't need to know all of the complexities of a particular situation that's that's relevant to him. And a teen would have a different mm-hmm. a relationship to those facts. And an adult would have a different relationship to right. those facts. So it's not the cosmetics. It's the it's the psychological structure that right. defines yeah, it yeah, for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much, yeah. Well, I think this has been a delightful nearly half hour Wow. With each other. I do go on. <laughs> well, no, but I think it went really quickly. I just looked down and was like, oh, my gosh, our time is, is up. We could have gone for hours. Uh, I think, gentle listeners, Paolo and I will be retiring to another location uh, where there will be uh, refreshments. Indeed. And we'll continue <laughs> our conversation. But, Paolo, uh, Bacigalupi, um, though I don't usually say to people, what are you working on right now that will be soon be published by another house? <laughs> Will you tell everybody about your next project? Uh, yeah, so my next my next project, uh, despite the fact that it's going to be coming out from another house, is called The Water Knife, and it's all about uh, drought in the Southwest and a water war between Phoenix and Las Vegas uh, in a global warming-changed future. So, and, uh, yeah, I'm actually sort of excited about it. Uh, as someone who grew up in the West and is very familiar with the... With the the long scheme to divert the Columbia River to Southern California. This, I will tell you, gentle listeners, is not such a far-fetched idea as you may think. I feel like like the present is catching up with me faster than I can write the future. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Uh, So that book, The Water Knife, comes out. In May. In May of 2015. Uh, Everyone, this has been Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. Thank you so much for listening to the LB School podcast. Uh, say goodbye, Paolo. Goodbye, Paolo.